From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, The Exciting World of the Totally Free, featuring Paulette Cooper. It was the Leonardo da Vinci, the Italian line. Beautiful ship. I love cruise ships. They're sleek and lovely swimming pools and great bars, which I certainly noticed. Elegant lounges, comfy-looking chairs all around it. It's just gorgeous. It was going to be fun. I decided I wanted to be a travel writer, and I wanted to write about a cruise ship, but that would have been boring. I decided I would stow away on a major ocean liner. I just walked on. Of course, you can't do that kind of thing anymore, but in those days, they had going-away parties. So while everybody else was partying, I ran down to the lower lounge, and sure enough, there was a piano down there, and I put my attache case in the bench. And in my attache case was mix and match clothes, rolled very, very tightly, including, by the way, a pink chiffon evening gown. Why, why the evening gown? The idea was to attract attention, and an evening gown, a stunning pink chiffon evening gown, that's why I did it. I was very confident that I could pull it off. You know, it's funny when I tell the story about stowing away, the women always want to know where I slept, and the men always want to know where I ate. (laughs) The first day out, there's no buffet. First day I ate the bar setups, which turns out if you haven't eaten anything, olives and lemons and little onions are not very good. So you were just eating the garnishes? Stealing the garnishes. I was starving to death. I couldn't sleep because I didn't have a bed, really. I'd have to wait until 2 in the morning when the last passengers would go to sleep, but then I'd have to be up by 6. What I did is I slept on a couch. I took a glass of water and put it by the table next to the couch to make it seem as if I had passed out. I did try at one point sleeping down below, but then there was a crew member who started feeling me up. While you were sleeping? Yeah, and I think that happened the first or the second night. So I decided I was better off sleeping right out in the open than trying to hide down in that lower section. Most stowaways, by the way, are caught when they're getting off the ship. And that was the hard part. I hid in a room and waited until everybody was off. But this was New York, and it was very cold. So I was walking off and I was freezing to death. And at that point, a car with two customs men pulled up. They said, were you on that ship? Yes. Why don't you have a coat? Oh, I was with my boyfriend and we had a fight. He took my luggage and my coat. And they said, well, where do you live? And I said, 16 East 80th Street. And they said, oh, that's not so far. We'll drive you. And I said, no, no, that's okay. No, we'll drive you. (laughs) (laughs) They drove me home. I tried to desert them, abandon them when we got to the place. They said, oh, we'd love to come in and have a drink. It was all, what, 10 in the morning or something. My neighbor was taking care of my dog at the time. 
cheeky. And she opened up the door and she saw me with these two huge customs men. And she thought that I had been, she knew what I was doing. She thought I had been caught and arrested. And she started to say something. And I mouthed to her, don't say a word. I served them drinks. And then they left. Oh my God, I did it. I pulled it off. I actually started as an advertising copywriter at BBDO, very, very major advertising agency. There was a lot of drinking and a lot of sex. It really was a lot of fun. I used to call it the country club. I was getting 5200 a year, and incidentally, the same day, a friend of mine, a guy, started, and he got 5700 And that didn't bother you at the time? No, it didn't bother anybody. We understood that. We were going to leave and have children. That was just a different time. This is the 60s. That's the way they thought. Meanwhile, they had a product they were trying to sell. It was dandruff shampoo. They couldn't get people interested. Nobody cared if somebody had little white specks all over their suit. We decided that we could make having dandruff be extremely socially undesirable. Like his dandruff. Look at that white on his suit. Some people who don't worry about dandruff ought to. Pam, for instance. Good-looking girl. Until you looked close. Dandruff. Never occurred to her that behind her back people were thinking dandruff. We just made it clear that it was socially unacceptable to have dandruff. Me? That it was akin maybe to dirty fingernails. So they had to use anti-dandruff shampoo. Pam got the word. Started using Head & Shoulders, the most effective dandruff shampoo you can buy. And I don't think people even knew what the word meant. I mean, we really had to lay it on thick. Nice lather, nice smell, beautiful way of handling hair. But advertising those days, there was no subtlety. You can imagine what he's thinking now. Pretty hair. Did you like that line of work? Not really, because I I felt that I was convincing people or trying to convince people to buy things that they didn't need and didn't want. And I didn't like that. I'd had this dream since I was eight years old of being a real writer. And I started writing on the side. I'd sold my first three pieces to Cosmopolitan, TV Guide, and the Washington Post. And I didn't want to do this anymore. I wanted to be a writer. Also, remember, this was during the Woodward and Bernstein Watergate era. Investigative reporting was a very good thing to do. Now, of course, uh, the media has all been smeared as fake media. But in those days, it was looked up to. I really wanted to make a difference. And actually, by the time I was 30, I had four books out. So my life was going very, very well. When did you first become aware of Scientology? While I was working at BBDO, my boyfriend joined. He was also a copywriter. One day he said to me, 
that he'd gotten involved in this group and he'd learned a lot about himself from it, and that he now realized that he had been Jesus Christ in a past life. Ooh, there goes the relationship. The man is absolutely batty. So I went to his boss, who was also my boss. We both worked for this man. And I said, do you realize that Bruce now thinks he's Jesus Christ since he joined Scientology? I mean, it had gone off the deep end. What are we going to do sort of thing? The boss said to me, well, maybe he really is. He had gotten his boss into Scientology also. So between the two of them, I thought, I have got to look into this. I think there's still quite a lot of doubt in many people's minds as to exactly what it is. What is Scientology? How would you describe it? Well, it's very interesting. You've just asked a question like, what are the contents of the Encyclopedia Britannica? Answer in one word. Well, Mr. Hubbard, it's obviously something that's very wide-ranging. And if you can't describe it over... There were a lot of Scientologists in those days. We have many, many denominations in Scientology, and it's one of the principles of Scientology that one can be a Scientologist regardless of his race, color, or creed anywhere in the world. And everybody was going to the uh, org, as they called it, and they had very attractive women soliciting men outside to come and take a free personality test. You see, if you don't know yourself, you know nothing. It's all right to guess at what you are. But uh, to know what you are, that, that is the essence of the whole problem. Why do you think man is here on this planet? What's his purpose? Why is he in a body? Well... All creation myths are a little bit uh, <laughs> bizarre. Scientology's is an evil prince named Zenil enslaved people 74 trillion years ago on another planet in outer space. There was an overpopulation problem, so they put everybody into a volcano and they dropped a hydrogen bomb on it. The spirits called Thetans floated to Earth and looked to inhabit people's bodies. Man is a spiritual being. He is not a piece of flesh. One of the things that Scientologists do is they spend a huge amount of money and time auditing out the spirits from their bodies. When you audit or process a person, he then... Auditing is like therapy, in which people hold on to a machine called an e-meter. One of the most misunderstood objects that anybody had anything to do with. Used to be just two soup cans. Now it's a little more sophisticated and costs about $1,000. And the meter simply shows where an individual is aberrated. The auditor will ask questions again and again, very repetitive questions often. An auditor has to be able to uh, get his questions answered. What have you done? Uh, the question is asked. What don't you want me to know about? And the individual who's being processed finally has to answer the question. So that's a basic thing that people pay huge amounts of money. They go up levels. Their IQ goes up, their abilities increase, they're more capable in handling their lives. You will have no problems, you will have no health issues. And to get well and recover from certain illnesses. If you had money problems, 
they would be gone. To make more money, to be happier in his environment. To live a better life. He can do his job better. He can live better. Basically, the man can be more able. And that's all we want in Scientology. When you reach the top level, it's a finite state known as clear. They believe that they can leave their body, and, uh, that, means that, the that they can move ashtrays with their minds. His mind is gone, and he is One of these things where most people should say, hey, this is too good to be true. And this state has been I decided to go undercover for a weekend to what they call the org. I just took the very first communications course. They had me do their basic technique, which was called bull baiting. On TR0 bull bait, the coach attempts to distract the student or break concentration in any way. And if he does, they have people sitting there looking at each other. You have like a partner. Ready? Yeah. Start staring at you, you know. You have an eye tick. <laughs> Flunk, you flinched. They call it confronting, but it's basically staring. Start. Trying not to blink. Oh, you really think you're smart now, huh? You really think you have it together, huh? Why are your eye jumping around like that? Huh? Uh -huh. You have to try to say the most disgusting things you can to make them react. Hmm. Look at you. Looking like some bedpan in a mental institution. What did people say? Ah! Pay attention when I'm speaking. I don't know if we can say this kind of stuff on the, on the radio. Be careful. Be careful, I could be dangerous. But, you know, uh, <coughs> references to, you know, cunt and, uh, you know, I want to fuck you and I want to suck you. Is that your mother in the corner? What's your mom doing over there? You know, I, I want to fuck your mother. She needs to be home. And I think that was probably the mildest of them. Of them. It was really bad. Okay, that's a pass. You did real good. Thanks. And then I left the the group and began snooping around. I may believe I was looking for a ladies' room or something, and I just kept walking and looking. I found an empty room with some papers, and they listed a woman's name and they said she was an enemy of mankind. Her crime was that she had pushed five men down the flight of stairs. And I thought, that's just not very likely. I didn't have very much time, but there were maybe four or five people, papers on each one of them. And I quickly wrote down first and last names. And all of them had unlisted numbers. In the 60s, early 60s, that was very unusual for people to have unlisted numbers. And I wondered if they were being harassed and if perhaps that was the purpose of these policy letters, as they were called, to get people to harass them. They suspected me, by the way, because I had been asking questions. One must never ask questions in a cult. So I was called into what's called the ethics officer. He said, I want to talk to you. He was very, very stern. You have to come in now. And I said, well, I can't. I have to go to the bathroom. All I could think of to get away, you know. And, and I said, no. And I said, well, if you don't let me go, I'll pee right on the rug. 
And I said it firmly enough that he looked at me and thought, hmm, I don't know, this woman, maybe she means it. So he let me go, and I dashed out of the building. The whole thing was a very sinister experience right from the very beginning. It was not my intention initially to write a book. It was to write an article. It's just that I got so much information. The truth about Hubbard, the truth about the E-meter, Scientology and celebrities, all these different categories. And that actually became the basis for my book, The Scandal of Scientology. You may have seen them standing on street corners with a handful of leaflets, distributing them aggressively to passerby. You may not have even noticed them at all because they look so much like you and me, except maybe a little younger and sometimes a little more like a hippie. Oh, my book was a was and even still is a devastating expose of Scientology. Step into the exciting world of the totally free. And you know what happened to the book? I had finished typing the manuscript. The paper was it was light paper, really almost like tissue paper. And I put the manuscript on the floor to mail it to the publisher, and my dog peed on it, my little cheeky. <laughs> I should have said at that point, this is a very bad omen. I should have quit right then and there. I did not. One day I got the first <laughs> death threat. I don't remember now, but it was something you know, along the line of we're going to kill you, but it didn't say why. <laughs> so I was sort of, huh? And things really began to escalate. Whenever I tried to leave the house, there was somebody outside following me all the time, and they were taking photographs of me. And unbeknownst to me, they were writing my name and phone number up on men's bathroom walls all over the city, you know, for a good time called Paulette. I was getting some of the most obscene phone calls, men wanting good time and, and describing what they thought a good time would be. And then there were all kinds of things we found that my phone had been tapped. And suddenly... Dear fellow tenant, There is a woman of very bad character who has recently taken residence in our building. All 300 tenants in the building received an anonymous smear letter that a woman had moved into the building. This 30-year-old sick child is an example of what the scum of this society is capable of. Who was a part-time prostitute. illicit parties and sexual perversions. With venereal disease. Noticeably swollen from an attack of venereal disease. Who had sexually molested a two-year-old baby girl. Abused a two-year-old baby girl. And, and by the way, the reason for that bizarre little statement was I had written in my book the case of a Scientology minister who had sexually molested this girl. So they wanted to make sure I knew they had written that. As if there was any question in my mind. You don't have to take my word for it. It's easy to see for yourself. She's 30 years old with the build of a 10-year-old child. Her nose is very large and not unlike that of a Halloween witch. She is a tenant in apartment 3H. Her name is Miss Paulette Cooper. It was very, very embarrassing, as you can imagine, walking around. And I went in the elevator and people were saying, you really think a prostitute moved in here? But the thing is, 
a lot of it was very childish. I felt I could spot one of their spies because they were staring and <laughs> and they were so bad. Upsetting in the aggregate, but silly. There was a flower delivery. Very well-dressed black man rang my doorbell. As it turns out, I was not in my apartment at the time. My second cousin, she had just come to the apartment. I was out. And he unwrapped the flowers, and there was a gun. Put the gun to her head, pulled the trigger. We don't know if it jammed, if it was empty, but she began screaming, and then he ran off. That was the first time I really became afraid for my life. Maybe a week or so later, I get a visit from the FBI. They said the Scientology claimed to have received bomb threats and named me as a likely suspect. I honestly thought it was the harassment of the week. I used to think of things as the harassment of the week. What are they going to do this week, you know? So I just treated the whole thing somewhat casually and didn't worry about it. Next thing I know, I'm subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury. Grand jury rooms are very, very large. And when I walked in, there were a lot of people staring at me. There were two bomb threats involved. I was up for five years in jail for each letter. If I denied doing it and was convicted of it, they would add five years for perjury. So I was up for 15 years in jail. And I still was pretty confident. And then I, when I saw the letters, I actually was confident because it was such an obvious attempt to make it look as if it was me. I know you're all around me everywhere. You know, talked about books. These damn books, they're closing in on me. I just had a, uh, an operation, so it, it referred to my operation. I hurt my operation. The letters were the dumbest. My tongue is swollen. Stupidest things you've ever seen in your life. I don't know why I'm doing this, but you are all out to get me. There was no way any intelligent person could ever think that I would write something like that. I give you one week before Scientology is a exploding volcano. I mean, it was just insane. And it was almost a relief when I saw the letters. I'll bomb you. I'll kill you. If my friends don't do it, then I'll do it. The prosecutor, he had a nervous twitch in his leg. When he was getting worked up, his leg would twitch even more. He kept asking me these, what I thought were somewhat stupid questions again and again. Are you on drugs? Have you ever seen these letters? Do you understand what I'm saying? Why did you touch this paper? At that point, I was just confused. Then his leg really began shaking. And he said, I've never seen these letters before, and you've never touched these letters before. Would you tell me how your fingerprint got on one of them? The whole room collapsed in front of me. The room actually began spinning. I think I fainted sitting up because I realized how incredibly serious this all was. 
Imagine, if you will, to be put in this kind of situation. You're accused of something. You have no idea what it's about. You're going to be bankrupted paying for it, and you may go to jail. And yet it was very important that I not lose my cool, because after all, I'm supposed to be a crazy bomber, you know? Do you remember what you did after you walked out of that room? Did you go somewhere? Did you have a drink or something? I, mean, I, can't I think I had a very strong drink. I think I probably had four very strong drinks. I was drinking a lot during those days. I was living on vodka and Valium, tomato juice and one egg a day. I went down to 83 pounds. I couldn't sleep. The anxiety was there underneath my throat, no matter what I did. This was stark, raving terror of what I faced. Jail, public humiliation. Once the trial started, it was going to hit the papers. I was going to be the scandal du jour of the New York Post and the Daily News. And I knew that no editor was ever going to give a writing assignment to someone accused of sending bomb threats to the people that she wrote about. And remember that bomb threats are terrorist crimes. You know, they, they tend to put people in jail and ask questions later. I should backtrack a little bit by saying that I had a boyfriend we talked marriage, we talked children, but I became so depressed, couldn't even get out of my robe. I mean, I was just, uh, and could no longer make love, that he had left me. And this other guy came into my life, Jerry Levin, but it was a completely platonic relationship. He would walk the dog, and he paid half the rent, and he, he listened to me. If you've ever had a friend who has some horrible, horrible, horrible nightmare and just keeps talking about it, you know that after a while you don't want to listen. And that's what had happened really with my friends who began avoiding me because they knew that things were just terrible and that's all I was going to talk about. So he was anxious to hear me. He was great. Every night he would go up to the roof. There was a swimming pool at the roof of this new building. A couple of times, he got me to go up there, and he's a really gutsy guy. He jumped up on the ledge and said, come on, Paulette, you can do it. Show those bastards that you're not afraid of anything. Here's somebody who once stowed away on an ocean liner and had once been so gutsy, and I just trembled down below. I couldn't do anything. What happened was that he had a very common name. And one day I was looking through the Scientology publications and I did see the name Jerry Levin. The notion that he was a Scientologist was ridiculous. But when I mentioned the situation to my lawyers, they got panicked and they said, well, who is this guy you're living with? I said to Jerry, I said, look, I know you're okay, but my lawyers are concerned and, and you know, they think, uh, you know, maybe you have something to do with Scientology. He turned on me and he said, now you've become totally paranoid. I've been your best friend and you don't even believe me anymore. You've really gone off the deep end. He left, stormed out, disappeared. And I felt even worse because then I had really nobody. 
I knew he was right. Then I was just totally paranoid, falling apart, didn't trust anybody anymore. I mean, I couldn't even look people in the eye. There was one night where I, I kind of saw evil for the first time. I fell asleep about two in the morning. I woke up at about four. Suddenly woke up with this icy, icy terror. I don't think I even understood. I never believed until all this that people could be evil. Maybe that's why I'm so still, <laughs> I read all this stuff about, you know, people suffering. Famine in China, gulags in Russia. Basically, it's evil. It's horrible what we've done to people throughout the history of the world. Believing that you have a better way, you are superior, you can destroy people who do not fit into your master plan. That was the first time I realized that there was some true evil in this world. And I was frightened, horrified. The worst day was my 31st birthday. Everything had gone wrong that day. A book of mine had come out, and the first review was bad. And I had been saving Valium pills. I didn't take every one that I I had. And I had saved a whole bunch of them for the trial, which at that point was about three months away. I had decided that if I had to go to trial on this, rather than be totally humiliated and humiliate my parents and probably lose, that I would kill myself the night before. But I was so hysterical, drunk, depressed, I began taking the Valium that night. I just kept drinking, and I wrote a suicide letter to my parents explaining that I was just in too much pain, but I loved them and that they should understand. Fortunately, a a girlfriend from college called me. And when she realized the state I was in, she just kept me on the phone. She wouldn't let me hang up until I had drank so much that I, you know, just sort of passed out. I can't say the next day things looked better, but at least the next day I, I didn't kill myself. I had volunteered to take lie detector tests, and they had this guy test me who was their police person. He spent a half hour screaming at me before, telling me that I was obviously guilty. By the time I took the test, I was so agitated. He said, oh, yeah, he says, obviously guilty, and he would testify. Then we went to another expert to try to negate his results. And I was so stressed I couldn't even pass the control question. But they start by saying, well, did you kill JFK? And I said, no. And he said, ah, lying, you did. Do you see? (laughs) All in all, I ended up taking four of them, and none of them were anything we could use. So I was in a position where we had a fingerprint on a terrorist document, and I had, quote, failed the lie detector test. I was desperate. I mean, we tried hypnosis. We tried everything. There really was nothing left for me to prove my innocence except 
truth serum test. I went around to a couple of doctors and they wouldn't do it because I weighed 83 pounds. It's anesthesia. They put you under. They said you could die. And I said, I don't care. If I have to go to trial, I'm going to kill myself anyway. We found a doctor, a very prestigious doctor at Mount Sinai. When he heard the story, that this really was a last-ditch effort. He agreed. I went into a medical room. I lay down, and the doctor was there, and the lawyers were there, and my parents were there. Oh, yeah, my big fear during the test was that my parents were present, and I wondered how much I was going to say either about my somewhat active uh, sex life during the sexual revolution and also the pot smoking, both of which would have really shocked my parents. I don't know because I never had the guts to ask them afterwards what I had said, but um, anyway. He put the needle in the back of my hand. I remember seeing the doctors and the lawyers looking at each other. I was told afterwards it's because it took me a long time to go under. And the reason was that I had so much alcohol in my system. And then I had no idea what happened. Imagine if you will put in this kind of situation that you ever seen these letters of scandal to the jury. Who sent it in? Why did you touch this public humiliation? Are you on drugs? Understand what I'm saying. They were asking me questions, and one of them was, what were bombs made of? I didn't know what bombs were made of. And apparently they kept asking me who sent it, and I kept saying Scientology. When I came to, which was several hours later, everybody is smiling and happy and telling me there'll be no trial and not to worry. The doctor was so angry that the government was putting me through this when I was so obviously innocent that he said that if they continued with the trial, not only would he testify for me, but he would chain himself outside the courtroom to protest the trial. Would you you say that the truth serum was like a turning point? Yes, it was a turning point. At that point, the government began to look for ways to get out of the case. When the government prosecutes the wrong person, they want to make sure that they don't come out looking bad. So they wouldn't just drop the charges. They agreed to postpone the trial for one year, not drop it. Postpone it for one year. And at the end of the year... If Scientology did not claim to have received any more bomb threats, and I went to a psychiatrist for the year, they often make that a precondition. And you have to pay for the psychiatrist, of course, okay? I didn't want to do it because to me the whole thing was very humiliating, but I had to do something and I had to pretty much accept whatever was offered. I agreed. And at the end of the year, they dropped the charges. On the other hand, I knew that any time, if there was ever anything like bomb threats that Scientology claimed I did, that I would be accused. And Because they, didn't, they weren't sure whether I did it or not. They just weren't sure whether they would win the case or not. That's, that's a big difference. 
So I had this over my head for years. It was a continuation, more lawsuits, more anonymous letters, more being followed. It was, it, they were not good years. I would have liked, I think, to have just crawled under the, a rock or something, but people kept contacting me. All these people that had all these problems with Scientology and had nobody to go to, nobody to talk to, they all began calling me and contacting me and asking for help and telling me these terrible stories. If you called the district attorney in California and said you were having trouble with Scientology, they'd say, well, we can't help you. They're a religion, but there's a woman in New York named Paula Cooper, and she has a listed phone number, and she will help you. I was the only voice in the wilderness willing to try to help these people and stand up to Scientology. Of course, every time I opened my mouth publicly, they sued me again. They sued me 19 times all over the world, and they would do things like five Male attorneys cross-examined me while videotaping me and asking me questions like, how long do your periods last? To try to humiliate me so I would back off. I didn't want to be an activist. I wanted to live a normal life, get married, have children, but I couldn't turn my back on all these people, even though I really wanted to just quit the whole thing. Also, I did, to be honest, I wanted revenge. And if I had quit, they would have won. And I just didn't want that. Now, flash forward, okay? October 1977. Church of Scientology documents seized by the FBI indicate that the church has been waging an extensive, sophisticated campaign to identify, attack, and discredit its enemies, including... I was then doing some travel writing, and I came back. I was flying back from Africa, and they used to give out free Herald Tribune newspapers, and I opened it up, and I thought, oh, please, maybe they'll finally find something that proves my innocence. And there's the story, very small story. Scientologists obtained the personal stationery of a woman, typed a bomb threat on it, mailed it to a Scientology office, and reported the threat to police. I just got chills even remembering it. The woman, who had written a book critical of Scientology, was arrested, charged with making a bomb threat, and charged with perjury when she denied doing it. She suffered a nervous breakdown before the case eventually and I just started crying because I knew finally I was going to be able to prove my innocence. The papers were released. I went down to Washington, D.C. to look at them. And one of the first papers I see are a series of typewritten notes. And it was saying things like what I was wearing, what I was doing, and then saying things like, Today she's talking suicide. Wouldn't this be great for Scientology? I realized that there was only one person that knew the things that were in there, and that it was Jerry. When he went up to the roof every night to get air, he was calling in whatever I was saying and doing to Scientology. Then I began thinking, about those nights that he wanted me to get up on that ledge with him. 
because the roof was 33 flights up. I believe to this day that he would have pushed me. Nobody would have known. They would have thought that I'd commit suicide. And this guy was very gutsy. We since found out his real name and that he used to be a helicopter pilot during the Vietnam War, so he had guts. Oh, by the way, the happy part about seeing pictures of him again is he's gotten very, very fat. <laughs> the main thing that I found was something called Operation Freakout. Operation Freakout. USB-1 NESEC working in liaison with OpsNAT if needed. NESEC, an AGINY organization... After they had failed to get me jailed in 1973, they attempted again. Major target to get PC, Paulette Cooper, incarcerated in a mental institution or jail, or at least to hit her so hard that she drops her attacks. The new plan included having me threaten to bomb local shops. Locate a laundry near PC's place and make sure she isn't known there. Send bomb threats to Henry Kissinger. Write the following letter on a library typewriter. You are a traitor to your people, you bastard. You are one of them. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to bomb you. I have connection. And threaten to bomb... Two Arab consulates in NYC from telephone booth nearest PC's place. Telephoner should be a girl that sounds like PC and the call should be fast, to the point, and impinge. It should go as follows. I just came back from Israel. Pronounces the way it is pronounced in Israel. I've seen what you fucking bastards do. At least you're not going to kill my sister. I can get away with anything. I'm going to bomb you bastards. Say something in Jewish swear or mumble something Jewish. I haven't read that one in years. I haven't read it since, <laughs> since my brother's father. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> when the documents came out, the press finally began to turn on Scientology. 60 Minutes was doing a major piece. We wonder just who are these Scientologists and what they're doing. But first, to a tale of serial harassment so extreme it's hard to comprehend. American journalists working in New York in the late 60s and early 70s stumbled into Scientology. Scientology tried to destroy Paulette Cooper wrote a book back in 1970. Many, many newspapers did stories. This is one of Hubbard's ethics orders on critics of Scientology, so-called suppressors. And it was a very exciting time. Different people knew different things, and they were willing to speak. Tonight, a former Scientology insider will allege there is much we don't know about this famously powerful, wealthy, and secretive institution. You don't talk to people who are not Scientologists. Your life becomes Scientology. The most stigmatized religion in the country. Church of Scientology is well known for being wealthy, defensive, and litigious. Yeah. They want to call themselves a church? Fine. So why is a church splitting up families? One of the church's most prominent figures has resigned and denounced the church's leadership. I have been harassed. I have been sued twice. I was put in a trash can. I have been followed. Cold water poured over me. I, I want people to have an opinion. I don't think being impartial is the right position to take here. All those years, people thought I was crazy. I was the only one saying that this is a bad group. 
Now people really know it. When I saw that there were other people willing to step forward, I could step back and live my own life. Even now, how many years later, when somebody says something happened in 1974, I think to myself, oh, the year after the frame-up. It, it still defines me. Almost every week, actually sometimes more, I get emails from people who tell me that they got out because of me and thanked me. But now that I'm much, much older, I say to myself, why should somebody else's happiness be more important than mine? People don't walk all over me like they used to. But I think that comes with maturity. There are people that are always going to try to take advantage of weaker people. But there's also goodness. There are always people that will try to do something about it. They may get snuffed out, but there are sensitive people in this world. I think I was one of them. Was? Yeah. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Stephen Jackson with fact-checking support from Michelle Harris, narration by Kate Cahan and Dan Epstein, and additional voices by Tommy Jackson and Nate Jackson. Love and Radio is produced by Stephen Jackson and Julia DeWitt. We are a production of PRX's Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia is made possible thanks to the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Now, I generally don't like to brag but I should point out that our team of editorial artists have been absolutely killing it this season, although you might not be aware if you're just listening to the audio. So head on over to loveandradio.org, and you can see amazing illustrations of everything that we've done. Thanks for listening. I'll just get a level. Can you tell me, tell me about your day? Oh, it was great fun. Went to a major, major luncheon with many people that I knew. And, uh, oh, Paul, you'll be delighted to know I didn't buy a $700 Doc's Hunt bag that was absolutely precious. And when I knew that it was a, um, what do you call it, a um, Timmy Woods, they dropped the price to $500, and I still didn't buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that's the story of how I did not buy a bag that was made for me. But uh, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to spend 500 bucks on a bag, <laughs> even if they came down 200.